I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Danby Samayo, who is an economist and best-selling author, focused on various aspects of macroeconomics and global affairs. She is co-principal of her family office, Versica, uh, but also has served on multiple complex boards, uh, such as Chevron Corporation, 3M Company, and formerly Barclays, former economist with Goldman Sachs, and uh, formerly with the World Bank. So welcome, Tambisa. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So your book is about how boards work, is the title, and how they can do better in a chaotic work. So my first question really is, why this book now? Boards have been around forever. Essentially, are you giving people an introduction to a perennial topic, or is there something new in the world of boards that you want people to know about? Well, in some respects, the title is a bit of a misnomer because the boards are really at the tip of an iceberg, and the iceberg being corporations. And so in that respect, the role of corporations is changing materially, and therefore the ability for boards to provide oversight is changing also. Um, which is why I felt that this was a timely and important book to write, not only because the mandate of the board is changing considerably given the macroeconomic, geopolitical, social, and cultural changes that the world is experiencing, but also because a lot of people seem not to really understand what boards do on a day-to-day basis. So you say in your book that there are three essential tasks for boards, and let's go through them. The first one is shaping a company's strategy. And I wanted to ask you, what is the role of a board in shaping a company's strategy? Because, of course, that's also the job of management. So how do you make the distinction between who does what? So um, at a, if you just take a step back, the board, as you rightly point out, has three roles. It's to provide oversight on strategy, to hire and fire the CEO, and also, more importantly, as time has gone on, has been added this role of the cultural frontier. And we'll get to all of them, I'm sure. But with respect to your question around strategy, It is absolutely the case that on a day-to-day basis, the management are responsible for strategy. The board steps in ultimately to provide oversight, not only about the strategy that is presented by the management in the here and now, but is really there to probe and to kick the tires for the long-term strategy of the business. So um, perhaps not surprisingly, you end up with short-term, medium-term, and long-term plans. And really, it's the board's responsibility to road test those plans to make sure that they comport to broader macroeconomic, geopolitical, and more competitive landscape type of issues, whether they're the rise of China or the advent of technology or the pressures emerging from climate change and ESG world. How does the board effectively do that? Because... Boards have a lot of things to do nowadays, a lot of compliance issues, and they have limited time, and they're distant from the business, and the businesses that they oversee are increasingly complex and very large. So I'm wondering, how can a board do that effectively? So most boards, certainly all the boards that I've served on, have a strategy day. It's called strategy day, but actually it tends to be multiple days. Every year, the board sits down and does nothing else but really review the strategic aims and goals of the organization. That is not to say that when we meet throughout the year, we don't talk about strategy. As I pointed out, we're constantly using the levers that we have, whether it's compensation or in the oversight role, as I said, hiring and firing the CEO, basically checking and challenging to make sure that the CEO and the management team are falling in line to make sure that they deliver on the plans that we've agreed to uh, in the previous year. So this is an ongoing task. Um, Of course, 
the uh, strategy days are much more detailed in many respects. They are much more forward-leaning, much more data-heavy. And really, that at the next points throughout the year, the board is really measuring the CEO and the team's ability to stay close to delivering on those strategic aims. There are a lot of new things in strategy. One of them is the increase in the decay rate, the contraction of the period for which competitive advantage lasts, which means that companies need to be more into not just operating the business, but reinventing the business. How can boards help companies be ambidextrous, both explore and exploit and balance the reinvention of the business with the running of the business? Actually, I talk about that in the book because I think one of the things that the board needs to do itself is to make sure that it's refreshing itself, to make sure that the members of the board have insights and have perspective on all these different changes, social, geopolitical, and as you're intimating here, technological changes. Um, One of the things that I've written on an article in Harvard Business Review a number of years ago is the question of whether the board needs a dedicated technology expert, given the uh, importance and, as you pointed out, the changing uh, landscape vis-a-vis technology. We look at these issues, all aspects, geopolitical issues, et cetera, on a regular basis, and we are constantly probing from the board, probing of whether we need dedicated expertise on the board. And very often, it really depends on the nature of the actual product or widget that you're selling. Of course, if you are in the business of selling technological projects, for example, you might want to have somebody with that experience. But there are other ways that the board can keep a finger on the pulse of all these areas, social, geopolitical, et cetera, technological, without necessarily having someone on the board take up the seat, if that makes sense, um, and really relying more on, on outside experts to make sure that you're really at the tip of the spear, especially in an area like technology, which changes so rapidly. Every company has a strategy day or a strategy offsite. Some of them use that for extensive PowerPoint presentations from division heads to the board. Others spend their time more effectively challenging and taking apart the strategy. What are some of the practices that enable the board to effectively play this long-term challenger role? One of the proposals that I have in the book, How Boards Work, is to suggest that the board could potentially do more in the area of providing oversight in terms of strategy. So rather than rely on the management simply showing up with a baked-in program that the board is required to uh, probe and to check and challenge, there's an opportunity to do something like red teams and green teams, where you have competing ideas um, basically thrown out and basically tearing up the proposals and the strategic initiatives that are being presented. That's something that's happening uh, much more at the board level. Um, I also think that uh, having some kind of a a much more hands-on role where the, the board can actually say, hey, wait a second, before we even see the strategic plan, here are issues that we think are important, whether it's provenance, digitization, deglobalization. We expect to see these types of things in the presentation or at least addressed in the presentation. I think that's another area where the board can play an important role. So let's move on to your second role, which is selecting the leaders, the CEO and perhaps the board itself. Is there a shift in the essential qualities that board members and CEOs need in today's world? There's absolutely a shift. But before I I delve into what some of those elements are, it's important to say that boards are helping to run the organization. They're providing oversight in compensation, in governance, in areas of audit and controls and in risk. Therefore, we have to populate those seats, ordinarily about 12 seats, with people who have expertise 
not only to provide the oversight, but to sign really that the corporations are running according to the laws of the land. So whether it's SEC or financials and the audit side, that would be uh, one example. And of course, issues of say and pay, where institutional investors have become much more aggressive, they want to see that there's real discussion um, by people uh, who've got experience in remuneration. Um, It is still the case, as far as I'm concerned, it is essential that at least 40%, perhaps a little bit more, of the board is made up of people who've been in the CEO role. One of the questions that I pose in the book that I think is a really great guide is to think as a board member, who's going to call me from the management team? Is it going to be the CEO? Is it going to be the CFO? Who in the team is going to find that my perspective is unique and relevant to the job that they do? The CEO needs support. They are the leader of the organization. And while they do rely on their team a great deal, part of the role of the board is to provide not just comfort, but also support during challenging times and guidance. And there's no better person, it seems to me, to provide that type of guidance than somebody who's already been in that sort of a seat. So it is true that um, I think that the board uh, selection continues to lean in the direction of people who have had uh, CEO experience. Beyond that, of course, we're living in a world where there's a lot of challenge geopolitically, a lot of digitization and technology change, and obviously cultural change. And those all really should be reflected in the boardroom, and it's to the benefit of the company longer term. Diversity is probably quite important in this respect, not just as a, an ethical issue, but in terms of bringing a variety of perspectives to this problem of reinventing the company. I'm not sure with you'd agree, but it's our observation that we've made remarkably little progress in diversity at the top of companies in spite of uh, much talk. What are the obstacles to having executing that, that diversity agenda, to having more diverse boards? Well, I have to tell you, I'm much more sanguine than uh, what you describe. I mean, it's certainly the case that we're not at 50-50. And if that's the the metric by which we're being judged, then perhaps, uh, yes, you're right, that, that has not yet been met. But um, you know, when I started my uh, board career over 10 years ago, I was the only woman and the only minority in all the big boards that I served on. It is not only considered sort of unacceptable, but also it's changed considerably. Virtually all the boards that I'm on have at least a third, more like 50% of the board represented by um, some form of diversity. So progress is being made. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges has been, as I described a moment ago, the fact that one of the hurdles uh, has been that we want to have, or traditionally boards have wanted to have people who have CEO backgrounds, which that necessarily closed or shrunk the pipeline uh, for women and minorities. But you know, I'm optimistic that that's changing. Um, I think that the important thing is that we're not losing sight, and I think this is good news. We're not having to lose sight of the fact that businesses still have to compete; they still have to be profitable. And in that respect, it's great that we're able to tap into broader talent and bring those diverse perspectives without shrinking or shirking on quality. You correctly point out that the one of the essential qualities of the board is the relationship of trust between the CEO and the board. And you've said that the effectiveness of a board depends upon that, that trust. What does that mean in practice? How do you develop that trust? Or what are the risks that tend to undermine or impede that trust? It's a very delicate relationship, for sure. In, you know, in many respects, it has to be cordial. The, the CEO has and his team or her team has to be comfortable enough to relay bad news, to exhibit insecurities, 
And also just to be able to say, I actually really don't know what to do in certain scenarios without feeling that they're getting judged um, harshly or negatively by the board. At the same time, there is clearly an asymmetry of information. They are, they, the management team, the CEO and the management are on a day-to-day basis looking at data and they have an ability to spin a story in a way that is not necessarily inaccurate, but might be um, sort of emphasizing something over another aspect that w- would be useful in terms of decision-making for the board. What I think is important um, at a very high level is that the CEO is not your friend. The CEO, this definitely needs to be camaraderie, but there need to be lines drawn to make sure that there is that comfort level of being able to be vulnerable, but also recognizing the nature of the symbiosis uh, in, in terms of the relationship. From my vantage point, it's worked very well. And I think that uh, it is something that is fostered, like most uh, relationships. This is not something that comes uh, naturally. But I do think that on the whole, um, it seems to me that this works quite well, um, in, in especially in, in, in both challenged and non-challenged environments. So let's come on to your third imperative, which is safeguarding a company's culture, ethics and values. That certainly sounds like a good thing. I'm wondering how bored with its distance from the business, the infrequency of its meeting and so on. How can a board effectively do that? Well, we control two very, very important levers. One is that we hire and fire the CEO. Really, they are the sort of standard bearer of culture and values of the organization on a day-to-day basis. The other thing, and I'll come back to that in a moment, um, but the other thing is uh, we are responsible and provide oversight for compensation, which you know we can quibble about uh, the, the pluses and minuses of how it's delivered and uh, the short-term versus long-term uh, in terms of incentive plans. But fundamentally, that is a, a very important lever uh, in terms of uh, influencing change and also driving uh, sort of a, a number of outcomes from diversity and inclusion, but also good behaviors. But one last thing I'll just say, which picks up on the first point around uh, hiring and firing the CEO, more and more I've been advocating, and this is something that I talk about in the book, that rather than relying and leaning on traditional uh, metrics to judge uh, a CEO candidate, things like financials or operational experience or teamwork, which remain absolutely valid, I think there's a higher bar that we need to um, emphasize, which is their ethics. Um, you know, very rarely, we, or I should say, in general, we tend to rely on people's references. But I think there's a, there's a lot more work that can be done to think about how to probe and really analyze someone's ethics. And, I, and I've written about that in the book. I'm not sure whether you count this as an ethical issue or not, but social contribution, purpose, CSR, these, these are coming to the fore. And uh, this one particular question, the stakeholder, shareholder question, which is quite hot right now. So the business roundtable has come out and said that we need stakeholder capitalism, not shareholder capitalism. There was this FT article that I'm sure you saw that said that, interestingly, that resolution was not brought to the boards of most companies. And there are different interpretations about what that data point means. Uh, What's your own perspective on this stakeholder-shareholder debate? Well, I think the key thing, and I've written recently in the Financial Times just last week on this, that uh, in principle, I don't think many people would find it objectionable that we um, as leaders of organizations are working and operating in communities and we should care about the environment in which we, uh, we, we operate. And that it is true that whether we like it or not, 
um, whether it's because governments have, have uh, ceded responsibility or whether it's because, you know, to quote Henry Ford, you want your employees to be paid enough so that they can buy your products. Um, the, ba- the bottom line is that corporations have a important role in terms of job creation, innovation, taxes, infrastructure, et cetera. Um, and so to me, there's no sort of surprise around uh, the fact that this role is increasing. Perhaps, however, the challenge is that in all these new cultural frontier issues, things like worker advocacy, pay equity, gender and racial equality, um, climate change, data privacy, all these big issues, which I address in the book, they are not simple as straightforward. And I love something that President Obama said, which was by the time an issue landed in his inbox, it meant it was very hard because if it were issues, if it were easy, somebody else would have solved it. And all these issues um, are landing on the table of the board because they're not easy. If they were easy, somebody else would have dealt with them. So it's true that the business roundtable has essentially set a challenge. Um, What is very difficult and what boards are dealing with right now is translating that very lofty goal into practical choices and decisions that we have to make on a day-to-day basis. And in all this array of uh, social and ESG, CSR, et cetera, um, there are trade-offs, important trade-offs for companies to have to to navigate through um, in in this quest to try and do better uh, in this area that has traditionally not been measured and has been uh, incredibly complicated with many different vested interests. It strikes me that the board has a sort of an impossible challenge in a way because the globality of business is increasing, the rate of change is increasing, the agenda is expanding. It now includes, for instance, you know, social polarization and AI ethics. Uh, we never seem to take anything off the agenda. And at the same time, we're, we're, we're still stuck with the same mechanism. It's, uh, it's about 12 people meeting once a month or whatever the frequency is. And in addition, lots of compliance burdens, lots of you know, boxes to check. So in navigating that complexity and getting to the heart of each of the matters that we've uh, discussed, what is the art of managing that complexity so that you don't end up with just the form of uh, governance, you end up with the substance of governance? So all the efforts currently are around metrics. People throw out claims of defund the fossil fuel companies, challenges around worker advocacy, people downing their tools. But part of the problems has been that we have had great metrics for financials, for example, and operational excellence, but we have not had good metrics that help us compare not just the progress of one company, but also how a company is comparing or how it's performing compared to its peers or more generally to the marketplace um, in areas such as environment, social, and governance. But that's changing rapidly. And in one respect, that is really where the work needs to be done. Um, and we are seeing that. We're seeing worker audits, um, which look in, thinking about it, since I've spent most of my board life sitting on audit committees, it's pretty surprising that we haven't had that before. We have audits on financials, we have audits on, on operations, but no audits on worker productivity or worker sanity, so to speak. Now, that's changing. The regulators are demanding it, and we're looking uh, broadly across sectors and across businesses um, on how to improve on that. But every area of ESG, um, to be honest, 10 years ago was sort of an afterthought in terms of oh, community investments, et cetera. I mean, we are now at the tip of the spear where we're talking about integrating those types of elements, those type of metrics 
into our day-to-day financials and, and operational metrics, as well as uh, you know other social metrics um, into our into our annual reporting. So I'm pretty optimistic. I mean, the the challenge for me is not that that the metrics um, are, are important. The challenge is really getting back to those trade-offs. You know, you know, on the one hand, you want to defund energy companies. On the other hand, you've got 1.5 billion people without energy. How should we be thinking about squaring that circle? You don't want to use di- um, discrimination to fight discrimination. So that perception that actually blacks and women and uh, my other minority groups uh, should be getting are getting promoted, but at the expense of white guy is, is not something that boards should want to promote. What we want is to promote meritocracy. These are competitive businesses that need to be able to compete. And so all of these areas are very delicate, but um, I think metrics are going to, to bail us out. Board, of course, conjures up a particular image, particular legal construct in the US, but it actually differs quite widely in different parts of the world, either legally or as a matter of practicality. One thinks about, you know, worker representation rights in Germany versus the situation in the US and so on. Two level boards, one level board. Are these observations that you're making and the ones in your book intended to be universal or are you talking mainly about uh, North American business? Oh, no, I, I, you know, my experience um, has been across different jurisdictions. I've been on the boards of European companies, uh, on the boards of uh, a Canadian company, uh, as well as in the United States. And, you know, at a superficial level, there are differences, which you've pointed out, um, you know, some board representation of employees, but also in the UK, for example, you have a separate chairman and CEO, and, and there are other differences, which I talk about in the book. I don't think that those differences are so split that they cause differences in the ability for boards to provide oversight on corporations. Um, you know, in fact, to me, there's much more similarities. All these boards have audit committees. They all have uh, issues around controls. They're all dealing with ESG wherever you are. There is no distinction in that. There's no distinction in the responsibility to hire and fire the CEO. So, you know, and I should say for, for as a specific example, for companies that don't have representation of workers or where you have emerged chairman and CEO, as they do in, in the United States, there are other controls that are embedded in the organization to ensure that those views and uh, those uh, sort of conflicts of interest are managed. For example, in the case of a, a chairman CEO, you have a very strong lead independent director who plays the role of that sort of independent chairman that you would see in the UK. I talk about these differences in the board. Uh, I don't think that they are um, so material as to, uh, to create concern about one structure over another. Unfortunately, our time is nearly up. A really interesting conversation. But let me end with a very topical subject, which is COVID-19. We saw the competitive spread, namely the difference in performance between the top quartile and the bottom quartile of companies double during this crisis. And actually, that's very typical of previous crises, that companies may perform differently in peacetime, but they perform even more differently in crisis times. And I wondered, is that got anything to do with the effectiveness of how the board contributed to those events? What's your experience or observation? Well, I would love to say yes, <laughs> of course. Um, and I think that there is something to be said about uh, about how certain companies perform through good terms and bad times. And I think um, what it really boils down to, if you think about crises, is that companies that performed well really had strong balance sheets, strong, uh, by that mean financial, strong operations, and they had very, very good controls. Um, so when the, when this surprising, very, very uh, t- uh, traumatic uh, incident or period uh, emerged, those companies 
quickly went into uh, execution mode. And I think there were a lot of companies that have been left vulnerable uh, because they had too much debt on the balance sheet. They didn't test their controls for having to deploy people at home, et cetera. And so what's from my vantage point, and I've written about this in another Harvard Business Review article, um, the takeaways are you want to have companies that are able to test these for these extremes, um, not just on paper, but really to road test um, these uh, these tail experiences in a way that makes sure that in future cases, you're on the sort of right side of, uh, of, of your analysis in terms of being companies that survive and, and actually perform well during challenging periods. Well, thank you, Damisa. This has been fascinating. I've been talking to Damisa Moyo about her new book, How Boards Work and How They Can Work Better in Chaotic Times, which is just about to be published by Basic Books as part of the Hachette Group in uh, May. So thank you very much indeed, Damisa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for hosting me.